because there's that famous Guardian article from several years ago, I think it is now, talking about a review of various healthcare systems and saying the NHS is very good at lots of things. The only thing it trips up on is actually keeping people alive. Yeah. Uh, and that will stick with me for the rest of my days as a classic example of how people seem to be uh, at least on the left, kind of blinded to what we should really want out of our healthcare system, which is which is in fact keeping people alive. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor, and I'm head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our director of strategy, John McDonald, and our special guest for this week, none other than Dr. Madison Perry, the president of the Adam Smith Institute. In this episode, we'll be discussing windfall taxes, NHS reform, and the very latest on the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, and even some Conservatives have called for a windfall tax, uh, as oil and gas companies see large profits as a result of global price rises. It was interesting to see our perspective on windfall taxes, that they are economically illiterate, being put to Ed Miliband on Channel 4 last week. Ed responded that, of course, we would say that, to which I would say, touche. So, Madsen, if I could start with you, why is it that you think so many on the left find the concept of a windfall tax very appealing? Because they see it as free money. Um, Basically, whenever anyone on the left sees a pot of money, they invariably think I could use that and spend it on my priorities rather than having other people spend it on theirs. It's very straightforward. That's what it means to be left wing. Um, They see, for example, in the case of the oil and gas companies, that the price of energy is rising because there isn't enough of it. And therefore, uh, the oil companies have been making good profits. The previous year, they made bad losses, but good profits looks very tempting. And it's always easy to say, the fat cats over there are making money. Let's take some of it and redistribute it. And that's roughly what they're trying to do. The the error lies in the fact that, that... the oil and gas companies um, need that money for investment. And if we don't get the investment, we won't get the energy supplies. And that means energy prices will rise even more. It is economically illiterate. So I suppose if we talk about windfall taxes, increasing the uncertainty of business conditions and that taking from that pot that energy companies use to invest in their infrastructure, what incentive would would energy companies have to to invest in their infrastructure while something like the price cap exists, which reduces customer interest in pricing uh, and actually puts less competitive pressure on on these energy companies to to boost supply when they they might be able to get away with charging high prices for energy, despite the fact that the wholesale prices are coming down. It's interesting that just coming off what Madsen mentioned, that in previous years, we actually saw these companies make significant losses, and we didn't see uh, calls for kind of subsidies to respond to this in the same way. It's only under the taxes. And there is, as, as Manson mentioned, the seductiveness of punishing the evil big companies who are profiting off our misery. It's a very compelling narrative. But as soon as you, you thought about this, the sort of issues that come into play, as have been mentioned, things like reducing incentives to invest in our, our future energy supply. But there's also a kind of a, a green aspect to this investment side of things as well. It's not just that energy companies invest in finding new sources of energy supply in order to bring down the cost of energy. It's also that a lot of the time they'll invest um, partially because of various consumer incentives, partially because of the, the limited market incentives that we've introduced on, on green energy. They have a good reason to try and find greener sources of energy. Uh, and within these companies, what you have is quite a, 
a fertile source of human capital, people who know the energy industry, they, they have an idea of how to actually uh, diversify and change our energy supply towards greener sources. And you're effectively disincentivizing them from doing that by putting these onerous windfall taxes on them. And for me, I think there's often this, and Madsen, I know you mentioned this on the ASI blog, so I'll let you say a little bit more about it yourself, but there's this concern about the actual burden of taxation. It doesn't fall on companies because companies don't exist. It falls on individuals. Yes, I, the way I word this is at the end of every tax is a wallet or a purse. Companies don't have wallets and purses. What they do have is shareholders, employees and customers. And uh, uh, the tax levied on the company is distributed between those three. And uh, you, you think that you're taxing a fat cat oil and gas company. In fact, you're taxing either its customers, its employees, who won't be able to get wage increases, or it's the shareholders. And if it becomes less attractive to shareholders, the company itself doesn't get the investment it needs um, to maintain it, its uh, supply. It is a fact that the, the big players, all of the big players in the energy industry, in the oil and gas market, all of them are huge investors in green technology. They see the future and they know we're not going to be digging that stuff out of the ground in 30 years' time. And so that they're investing in things like um, hydrogen, wind, solar. Uh, and if you take that investment pool from them, you will slow down the rate at which we're moving to a greener energy source. So I suppose if windfall taxes don't work, we're still left with the problem that, that many, many people will struggle to pay their energy bills, uh, particularly as we come into April. Is there something that can be done to help people manage that price rise that isn't using a windfall tax to take from the energy companies and redistribute to people who are struggling? Dan, if I start with you and then, and then come to Madsen. Sure. I mean, there, there's the pretty obvious point when it comes to windfall taxes that at least some of this tax increase, if it were to take place, it doesn't seem like it is at the moment, thanks. Uh, it would be passed on to consumers in the form of higher energy bills. So there's a certain counterproductive nature to this, not even solving the problem that its advocates are claiming to address. Uh, but in terms of what I would do, I think to some extent in the office, I think, and free marketeers have been on, on a, a bit of a fact-finding journey when it comes to what the best solution is. I think for my money, the kind of ideal would be to use the existing welfare system that we already have uh, in order to maybe increase the rate of universal credit, for example, and, and do things that way. That's very targeted, a lot more targeted than, say, cuts to uh, VAT paid on energy that would act as a further distortion in our already heavily distorted tax system. But another option that I think has potential is very simply selecting the households that are likely to bear the brunt of this uh, and giving a one-off cash grant. Free marketers in general, when it comes to discussing the welfare state, tend to be in favor of direct cash payments where possible, as opposed to things like, say, the, the warm homes discount, which is very specifically kind of targeted towards energy costs in general. If we have a, a broader cost of living crisis, which we do, it's not just energy prices that are going up. We're seeing you know unprecedented levels of inflation already and certainly forecasts into the future, we need to give people as much choice over how they choose to meet that challenge. Uh, if And if we are going to compensate them in some way or give them a little bit extra in the short term to help weather the storm, then what better way to do it than leaving them as much choice as possible with, with cash rather than any sort of uh, benefits that are tied to a specific good? If we look to the medium term, I think the best thing government could do to, to help individual households would be to stop doing some of the things that it has been doing that put up prices. Uh, the fact is that the target for a um, zero carbon economy uh, is 
going to be very, very expensive. I think the government should, should look at that again. The government should also look at the uh, levy it puts on um, fossil fuels, which, of course, puts up energy prices. It should also re-examine fracking to see whether or not this has a contribution to make in giving us a, a, an extra supply of gas. There's, there's estimated to be at least 50 years worth of gas uh, under our feet. So, uh, as I said, if the government pulls back on some of the things it's doing, then in the medium, we're, we're going to see supplies increase and the price diminish. There's also, just to add to that list, there's the energy price cap itself, which, whilst it may keep prices down in the short run, certainly the medium and long run effect of it is, as we've discussed in terms of the supply situation, to drive prices up because you're disincentivizing finding new forms or new sources of energy for companies who operate in this market and they have far less of an incentive to be able to do so because they're not letting price signals work properly. Now you can kind of marry this approach if you're concerned as I think it's reasonable with the welfare of those on low incomes by compensating them on low incomes for energy price rises in the short term whilst letting the market work as efficiently as possible uh, and actually benefiting them in several years down the line. And th there's a kind of another perverse, I guess, incentive or, or perverse outcome that the price caps resulted in, which is whilst many of our European neighbours ended up gradually adjusting to what has been a, a large increase, very large increase in energy prices over the past several months, we're going to take it all at once. Uh, we don't have the luxury of you know, adjusting our consumption on a monthly basis in response to our energy bills. And, and that, to an extent, has also distorted consumers' behaviour. Now, it's, it's obviously very difficult in many scenarios to significantly reduce your energy consumption. It's something that's, that's fairly inelastic in terms of demand, at least in the short run. But it's just kind of cutting off yet another avenue by which people would be able to use the market signal of energy prices to adjust their behavior. So the energy price gap isn't just bad from this, uh, this lack of investment perspective. It's also bad in terms of consumers not having the signals they need to be able to respond to uh, changing market circumstances. So Madsen, I wanted to ask you some uh, quite a counterintuitive question. If the objective is to raise more tax revenue and perhaps to raise more tax revenue from the rich, is there a better way to do that than through a windfall tax? I rather take the Milton Friedman view that all taxes everywhere are, are basically bad. Uh, so don't expect me to, to uh, come out in favour of particular taxes. Of course not. Uh, well, on that note, let's move on to our next topic, NHS reform. Last week saw Health Secretary Sajid Javid admit that hospital waiting lists will not start falling for at least two years, with one in nine Brits currently experiencing the NHS backlog First hand. Although many other countries have also faced increased pressures on their health services as a result of the pandemic, comparatively poor NHS performance on various metrics in comparison to our international friends and partners has prompted calls for reform rather than simply pouring more money into the edifice in the hope that it will fundamentally change our healthcare system. John, going to you first on this, the government's action plan for clearing the backlog that was announced very recently, basically involved a bunch of new targets, uh, which sound very convincing to me, uh, a network of new diagnostic centres, uh, community diagnostic centres at that, our favourite, uh, funded via the national insurance contribution rise, and also greater transparency about waiting times uh, via a new app. Do you think any of this will make a significant dent or will work at addressing the backlog? And is there anything else that we can try in the short term, at least, uh, to alleviate what is a serious problem in the UK? That's an interesting question. I think 
more transparency around waiting times is always good. Uh, and it's good to see the NHS adopting new technologies as a means to, to help deal with waiting lists. I think something that's very important in reducing waiting lists is having pre-screenings through an app, right? So to stop you from having to go to the doctor itself. Having said that, I think there's probably more we can do in terms of, of getting the private sector involved. Uh, I think, for example, if the NHS misses an appointment within a specific window, that it should be opened up to the private sector who should be able to take on the appointment, guarantee treatment within a certain time frame, and then for the NHS to pick up the tab. Um, so I think that would that would really help uh, in the long term. So utilizing the private sector capacity that we have to, to a much greater extent. Yes. I, this kind of brings me on to the question for you, Madison. We often see in the papers over the past, well, I imagine, 30, 40 years of the NHS is being stealthily privatized. Do you think there's any truth to that? And if not, what would uh, a free market or, or a more free market approach look like in practice when it comes to healthcare? I tend to not preoccupy myself with tinkering with the details, uh, but to look at the bigger picture. I think the whole structure of the NHS needs to be reformed. If we're going to save the NHS, I think there are three things that I would like to see done to it, all of which I think would attract popular support, which is very difficult because the NHS is widely regarded as a religion that you don't tinker with God and you shouldn't tinker with the NHS. Um, firstly, I'd like to see everyone given an NHS guarantee card, the size of a credit card, uh, that would enable them to get treatment whenever they were ill, whatever their status, level of income, they could go along and use that card to secure treatment that the NHS would pay for. And that treatment would include private sector as well as public sector. There would obviously have to be, as there is with motor insurance, um, price caps. D doctors must not be allowed to game, game the system, so to speak, by charging excessively. But uh, given that there would be price caps, people should be able to go to the private sector with produce that card and have it paid for. Secondly, I, I would like to see um, doctors and hospitals paid on the basis of the procedures they perform, rather than simply for having people on their lists. Uh, that way, uh, instead of finding it very difficult to see your GP for at least a fortnight or whenever it is, GPs would be falling over themselves, as they do in Australia, to try and uh, do that consultation, because they would get the money for it. Uh, similarly with hospitals, where it is done to a limited extent, but fundamentally paying on the basis of procedure would actually alter the direction of the entire NHS system in favour of the general public, the consumers. And the third thing I'd like to see, again, uh, a, a structural reform, is that um, hospitals uh, should be um, freestanding. Uh, independent, like academy schools, with the status of academy schools, receiving their monies on the basis of the procedures they perform. Now, those three, I think, alter the direction of the NHS from top down to bottom up. So instead of being controlled by the managers, bureaucrats and politicians, it ends up being controlled by the demands of the people who receive its treatment. Uh, I think just to seize on that, that point about control by bu bureaucrats and politicians, a statistic that always kind of makes my eyes widen slightly. We know the NHS, one of the largest employers in the world, but only a third of the NHS workforce is actually made up of doctors, nurses and midwives. And to me, that immediately screams that that's not the right balance that we have at the moment. We have far too much in the way of, of managerialism going on in the NHS. But to, to kind of speak to this this privatization point as well because it gets brought up every single time that the nhs is being privatized whenever you suggest any sort of politically feasible reform even that would improve outcomes for 
patients whilst keeping universal coverage, as I think every one of us on this podcast wants to do. Uh, the NHS, or rather Britain's hospitals, around one in 10 of them uh, are private, if you look at the hospital sector alone. If you look elsewhere in Europe, the kind of dreaded uh, European systems of healthcare, in, in France, about half of hospitals are private. In Belgium and Germany, three quarters of all hospitals are private. In the Netherlands, every single hospital is run by the private sector. And yet, whenever the question of reforming or changing the way that the NHS is structured is actually brought up, we inevitably get this pointing towards America as the kind of worst case scenario, the, the example of what we apparently on the centre-right want to see happen. Whereas, of course, you know, Madsen, as you just explained, that the American system is very far in many ways from what we'd like to see as the ideal. And in fact, a lot of extremely successful systems much closer to home and yeah. have much better outcomes when it comes to cancer, for example. Uh, Can I interrupt you briefly just to say that um, if you if you look at the Australian system, I, I think that comes fairly close to what we'd like our NHS to be like. I, well, uh, yeah, I mean, Australia for me is, is also a very good example. It exhibits a lot of characteristics that improve outcomes significantly. And you just have to look at the NHS's record in comparison to uh, Australia's or indeed uh, many other European neighbours to see that we could be doing much better than we already are. We could have much higher cancer survival rates. We could be improving outcomes for patients. Uh, but I guess just to, to finish up on John, looking at this kind of political possibilities around NHS reform, do you see the kind of post-pandemic backlog and the general narratives that we have around the NHS struggling to deal with these new pressures being an opportunity to kind of reintroduce significant reform into the conversation, or is it something that we're going to continually struggle with till the end of our days? Well, it's very hard to be optimistic about the prospect of NHS reform. I think the sentiment is, and behind a lot of closed doors, is that the NHS is, you know, a highly valued uh, national institution. Uh, but that in many cases, it just doesn't work very well, right? Like if you have a, not even a serious issue, but you're, you're trying to get an appointment with your GP, you might be waiting, you know, a matter of weeks, maybe even a month, maybe more. And this is what brings people to go private. And what I hear quite often is that people kind of shudder at the thought that they themselves might go private, but their experience of it is actually quite positive. And I think more and more people are realizing that going through alternative means than, than just the NHS itself being the point of healthcare might actually work better. I suppose as people do that and, and understand that the NHS can't cover all of their needs all the time, maybe we can we can start having a different conversation about it. But you know, as things stand, people feel that healthcare has to be a right that the principle of universal or universally accessible healthcare must be preserved. Now, what I hope is that people understand that that doesn't have to be done in a way that means the NHS brands everything but it's a that's a very a very long and arduous battle i think in, in some ways it reminds me of uh, my experience talking to mps when it comes to drug policy because privately you'll get this oh yeah you know i agree that the current system doesn't work and that we need to change it when it comes to actually taking any sort of public action or any sort of public statement they think it's far too toxic um i don't think that's true with drug policy i think to some extent it probably still is when it comes to to healthcare so that i have a bit more sympathy with them um, on, on that note. But I, th I think we should probably move on now to our final section uh, topic for this podcast, which is the latest on the ongoing Russia-Ukraine crisis. Over the last few weeks, there has been much discussion over increasing tension over Russian military presence on the Ukrainian border. 
I'd say the analysis I've seen falls into two main camps. The first being that Russia is committed to war in Ukraine, that in circumstances permitting, it would invade. The other being that this is mostly about regional geopolitics, that the Kremlin wants to see how far it can push NATO on the principle that a good defense is a strong offense, uh, especially given that Ukraine can't join NATO unless it has stable borders. So Madsen, starting with you, I know we've discussed this topic a little bit recently. Uh, with Russian state media reporting that around... 40% of Russian forces have been pulled back from the border and NATO stating otherwise. Do you think that de-escalation will prevail or do you think that news that there might be some shift in, in troops back to Russia is more about criminology and, and intelligence deception than anything else? I think it's a good starting point if we try to understand uh, what are Russia's concerns. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but we, let's just see it from their point of view. 60 years ago, an independent nation Cuba decided to have armaments installed on its sovereign territory from someone it wanted to get armaments from, and the United States intervened to stop it happening because it didn't want its number one world challenger on its doorstep. And I think the Russians probably see the world in a very similar way. Ukraine is an independent nation, of course, as Cuba was, but the Russians don't want their number one world adversary on their doorstep. That's from their point of view. Now, of course, it's the right of the Ukrainian people to decide who they ally with and where their political orientation heads. But from Russia's point of view, I think they don't want uh, Ukraine, obviously, to join NATO. Will they get a guarantee that Ukraine will not join NATO? Mm. The Cuba Missile Crisis um, had a, a secret clause, which is that the Russians withdrew the missiles that Castro had invited in, and uh, in return, the Americans withdrew Thor missiles from Turkey and Italy. That clause was kept secret. Now, the Ukrainian crisis might well be resolved by a similar secret agreement that Ukraine will not join NATO for at least 10 years. That calms things down, the tensions subside, and in 10 years, whoever is leading the world then can have another look at it. <laughs> but I, I think it's possible to de-escalate by going some way to seeing the world from Russia's point of view, and maybe giving them for the moment a little bit of what they want. And I think that that view is actually echoed in what we've seen reporting on this recently, where it does seem like there are, you know, behind under the table negotiations going on around a potential uh, guarantee or, or at least promise that uh, Ukraine will not join NATO for the foreseeable future. It's something that I think uh, some German diplomats have been making noises on. Uh, it certainly seems like that's the main goal when it comes to Russia. And I think that you're right, Madsen, that in order to really understand how best to solve this crisis, you need to recognize that Russia is, whether we agree with them or not, and I'm, I'm sure in my case, I, I certainly don't. I think that's probably shared by all of you, but they are acting rationally. They're acting as a, you know, as a rational actor in this, and we should understand their action accordingly. Well, that kind of takes me back around to gas prices, which I suppose in part is caused by a Russian squeeze on supply. Uh, it's clear that Putin is is flexing his international muscles at the moment. But I wanted to ask you both if there is an argument for trying to di diversify energy supply away from dependence on, on Russian gas as a, a matter of for foreign policy as well as uh, financial policy. Well, we don't uh, dig it out of the ground here in Britain. What we do is we get other countries to dig it out of the ground and then liquefy it and ship it across and we buy it from them. The, the, the net difference to the environment is zero because the same amount of gas is, is being produced, whether we produce it or whether we buy it from others who produce it. Uh, yes, of course, we should uh, diversify. 
but do recognize that gas is a very important bridge uh, between uh, dirty energy based on coal and clean energy based on uh, nuclear, wind and solar. It's very important that we have access to gas. We're, we're buying American gas at the moment. I think it's also worth noting, yes, we, I agree we should diversify supply and a good start to that would be, as we mentioned in the first section of this podcast, restarting at least exploring fracking as a possibility in the UK once again, uh, given the, the moratorium that was placed on it several years ago. But I would caution against putting too much emphasis on the kind of strategic needs to diversify supply in the event of war, because one of the things that, that can help to prevent war, or at least encourage positive and, and good relations between different countries, is significant amounts of trade. Uh, and of course, you know, you can see this coming up in bad ways with Germany and uh, their increasing dependence on Russian gas being probably one of the leading countries in basically calling for acceding to some of Russia's demands because they are so worried about the impact that would have. Well, that wouldn't be the case quite as much if they hadn't closed down their nuclear power plants, but that's a, another story. But, but it is worth noting that having trade and, and uh, gas relationship with Russia is something that encourages from both sides, I think, uh, a more rational and, and peaceful diplomatic policy you know those they can turn off the taps and lose hundreds of millions of pounds a day uh, and you know, through self-harm of their own economy it seems to be quite a good incentive not to do so and, and not to be in a situation where they want to impose those sanctions so i, I just be cautious about putting too much emphasis on this uh, strategic diversification argument. Could I look a little backwards again, like I did to the Cuban Missile Crisis, do. and look at the situation of post-war Austria? It was occupied by four powers, as Germany was initially, and uh, the Russians were persuaded to agree to a pullout of the four powers and give Austria its independence, let it become a democracy, provided that Austria remained neutral, and a guarantee was given at the time, that Austria would be neutral, would not join the Western Alliance, and would of course not join the Warsaw Pact either. And that, that was enough to appease the Russians and let, let, they let Austria go its own way. It's possible that something similar might be done in Ukraine. That is uh, an agreement that Ukraine would be militarily neutral as Austria was. Uh, of course, Austria eventually joined the EU, but that was after decades had passed. So, as, as I say, the, the, the road is open to diplomacy and there are several solutions, some of which we, we've seen work before and they could work again. And I do worry sometimes that in recent days what we've seen is seemingly some positive developments in the, the diplomatic sense. It's like Russia, at least publicly, has been talking about a climb down or reducing troop numbers, etc. But that does not reflect the situation on the ground at the time of recording this podcast on Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> You've seen actually today that Russia's ambassador to the EU saying that uh, we're not going to invade today because uh, wars in Europe rarely start on Wednesday. I have no idea of the, the empirical validity of that comment, but last night we saw various arms of the Ukrainian government, their websites go down from a cyber attack. Uh, we don't know who did that. We may speculate as to the, uh, the perpetrators there, but their Ministry of Internal Affairs, Foreign Affairs Ministry, all the websites have gone down. And it seems as though actually more troops are starting to be deployed on the Russia-Ukraine border, not less. So we're certainly not out of the woods yet. And I'm still kind of rating, at least from my perspective, the likelihood of an invasion to, to be significant. Yes, and the American intelligence service is doing something that they've never done before. 
That is, they are releasing, uh, making public their intelligence findings. They're yes. letting the Russians know that <laughs> we, we see what they're doing. We make it public. Now, previously, uh, they've withheld that information in order to not let adversaries appreciate how good their intelligence is. Now we're doing the opposite, releasing the intelligence in, in order to preempt uh, Russian actions. If we know about it, uh, then it increases the chance that they won't do it. Mm. Now, almost certainly, we now know our intelligence services from our satellite images and the like. We know whether or not there are troops going back. It, it's something that is a question of fact that someone on our side knows. But we're not being told. All, all we're being told is we've seen, you know, that we, we'll judge them by their actions, not by their words. Mm. I remember seeing a tweet this morning which showed that a new bridge had been built on the, the Russian side of the border and it, it being tweeted out by US intelligence services and making it very clear, we see what you're up to. Yeah. And, and just a, a kind of final comment on, on this from me, there does seem to be this, I think, overly optimistic narrative around the likelihood of invasion because actually, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 100,000, even 150,000, some estimates say, the amount of troops on the border, that's not enough to take all of Ukraine, uh, let alone occupy it for a significant period of time. I think that that's true, but it's also underestimating the power of uh, the Russian military to undertake a more lightning or a, bl a blitzkrieg invasion and, and just how much firepower these uh, battalion tactical groups, as I believe they're called, actually pack. You know, people will compare it to the US and Afghanistan, but it seems as though Russia's main aim is not to of course, annex the entirety of the Ukraine. Um, there, there are various other things that it would do, I think, to try and set up uh, more of a, a buffer state to NATO. And it's not about just a, a land grab for its own sake. So just, just in conclusion, I am concerned still. I, I remain very concerned about the likelihood of an invasion. I have a final question, if either of you two would be interested in, in having a crack at it. So I saw today in the Telegraph, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, praising Russia's economic model, that it's really focused on driving down national debt, which is now 80% of GDP, which is the sixth lowest in the world. And it looks like it'll get even lower than that. It's running a budget surplus as well. I wanted to ask if this sort of economic model of self-reliance is beneficial in the post-COVID world, or, or do you think that it might backfire on Russia, that it'll end up impoverishing itself in this way? Well, it works in the sense of, of building up significant reserves in the event of a war. I'm not sure it works in terms of enriching and, and increasing the prosperity of the ordinary Russian man or woman on the streets. And one of the lessons that I think we learned from the pandemic is that this idea that actually we need to deglobalize and we need to, to kind of reduce our reliance on international supply chains has proven completely false, just even on its own terms. And when it comes to things like supply chain resilience, if you have a problem domestically with your supply chains, then actually reliance or, or links with other countries is a fantastic insurance policy if your own supply chains don't work. Uh, and actually, I think that globalization has increased resilience on that rather than decreasing it. So from that kind of strategic argument, I think that we're, it, it's fundamentally flawed. But also, there's just this question of, well, you know, global supply chains, specialization, the division of labor, comparative advantage and trade between countries, all of these things that Smith and Ricardo have talked about several hundred years ago, they still work. They're still true. They still make us wealthier, richer, happier, and more able to do what we want. You can make yourself self-sufficient for strategic reasons, but do bear in mind that the price of doing so is that you make your own citizens poorer. Now, you might wish to be self-sufficient 
as I said, for strategic reasons. But when you deny your, your, your citizens the access to foreign goods, then you, you're making them poorer than they would otherwise be. So there's a price to be paid for self-sufficiency. In my view, it's not worth doing. We, we, we left the self-sufficient world a long time ago. And if we go back to it, then we'll be undoing some of the gains we've made in, in curbing world poverty over the last three decades. Well, on that note, I think it's probably time to bring this episode of The Pin Factory to a close. It's been an absolute pleasure to be joined by my co-host, John McDonald, our Director of Strategy, and our special guest for this week, Dr. Madsen Piri, the President of the Adam Smith Institute. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast providers, and we will see you in a couple of weeks' time. We're taking a very short break next week for yet more banter analysis. Thank you for listening. Thank you.